Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Very excited to have you all here today and hosting the show for the second week in a row, which is always fun for me. Uh, I've actually just gotten back from vacation, and I'm, I'm having massive technical issues, so I can't get into my computer, which is highly stressful, but it did remind me of a tip that I always want to share and we try to talk about on the show, and that is please do not wait to the last minute to submit your applications. I know it seems easy. Back in the day, I had to drive around and look for a post office that was still open. Now you can just press a button, but you can't press the button if you can't get into your computer or if 40,000 other people or 100,000 other people are pressing the button at the same time. Guess what? It overloads the systems, and many colleges are not going to uh, feel sorry for you because they agree with me. Don't wait till the last minute. So that's my public service announcement for today. I'm very excited about the show today. We're talking about some really interesting things. Uh, We're going to be doing uh, part one in a two-part series on college finance myths. We're going to be talking about the myths and the reality. We're also going to be talking about the positives of the different locations where you might go to college. And by that, I mean urban versus suburban versus rural. Why would the, each of those options be good and, and how to think about which one might be right for you? Uh, but before we talk about that, I do want to talk about, we've been, we've been talking about in the past couple of shows, college visits, and we're going to continue that conversation today by talking about overnight visits. And joining me uh, is a former admissions officer for Reed and my current colleague here at College Coach, Abigail Anderson. Hi, Abigail. Good morning, Beth. Well, thanks for joining us. I know it's early where you are out there in Portland, Oregon, but um, we're excited to have you on uh, today. It's, it's early when we're taping this for all our listeners who are saying, wait a second, it's not that early. It's one o'clock here. <laughs> um, but let's get right into uh, what you're here to talk about today, which is overnight visits. And so this sounds a little bit silly, but what is an overnight visit versus just a regular visit? I don't think that's a silly question at all. Um, A lot of families don't realize that a regular visit to a college campus usually only takes about two, maybe two and a half hours at the most, where you go to maybe a 45-minute or hour-long information session, and you go on a maybe similarly long tour of the campus. A lot of campuses don't offer overnight visits, but there are still quite a few schools that do. And and an overnight visit entails actually spending the night with a host from the admissions office or maybe a friend um, unofficially that you know who attends that school. Most students who do overnights are going to eat a meal in the dining hall, actually spend the night in the dorm, um, and have an extended stay much longer than, you know, the typical two hours that you do on a regular college visit. Got it. Then that makes sense. And and I guess the next question for me, which again feels quite obvious, and I think you probably just answered it, is why would you do an overnight versus just doing that more traditional visit? Yeah. I mean, 
Not everybody wants to do an overnight. It can honestly be kind of awkward to do. You're spending a night often with a stranger or somebody you don't know very well, and it can be uncomfortable. You often have to sleep in a sleeping bag on the floor. This is not staying at the Marriott or the Hilton with your parents down the road. Um, and you're, you're going to be eating college, you know, dorm food. It's, it's not going out to dinner with your parents on a, on a vacation. Right. Um, but a lot of students do it because they want a better sense of what the school is actually like from the date, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Um, one of the things that can be tough about visiting on a normal two-hour-long visit is that you're typically only speaking with people who are employed by or volunteers for the admissions office. So there's kind of a bias of people who love the school who are either or getting paid to love the school. Um, so one of the biggest benefits of spending the night is that you have the opportunity to really see the college with the veneer kind of peeled back. Um, You have more time to ask questions. You have more time to hear students just be themselves. Um, You might even get to go to classes. Where I worked, it was pretty hard for our um, visiting students to sit in a class visit if they weren't spending the night. And it was a lot easier to schedule them for um, class observation if they have, if they choose to spend if they chose to spend a longer time on campus, so that was another big plus. I, I was thinking of about overnighting. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the caveats I would add in here is I'm not sure overnight makes sense for. We're big fans here at College Coach of visiting the schools that you are serious about or that you think you might be serious about, and I don't think. Uh, we also understand that it isn't always feasible to visit a lot of schools because it costs a lot of money and, and it can be, you know, and it's very time consuming. And, and those two things can make it incredibly difficult for families to do much visiting. But um, especially for those families who are going to visit a lot of schools, I wouldn't come away from this segment and think, okay, now we need to worry about scheduling overnights at every single one of those schools. In my mind, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, I, I see a college, an overnight visit as sort of a I'm pretty sure I love this school and I might want to commit and apply early decision, which is binding, or I'm trying to choose between these two or three schools which have emerged as my favorites. Those might be the schools where you want to do the overnight visits versus trying to do seven or eight or more overnight visits, which I think is a little too much. But I w- I'm always open to other thoughts on that, so I'd love to get you know, your opinion. No, I, I'm in total agreement with you. I just think with how busy our juniors and seniors are, there's just not, you know, time to do overnight visits. You can't miss that much school, especially when the admissions offices are expecting you to keep up your grades and your activities and write all these essays. It's kind of nuts to imagine right. that you would do seven or eight overnight visits. Mm-hmm. I see the overnight visit, I think, exactly the way you see it. Either you're really trying to make a decision about applying somewhere with a binding early decision agreement um, or application process, or in the spring, maybe around this time when you're, or in the next couple of weeks, really, when you're starting to get the decisions back and you're down to, okay, which of the, 
these two or three, like you said, schools am I actually going to enroll in, that's Mm -hmm. when I would take advantage. And honestly, I think from my experience, that's when most admissions offices host their big overnight experiences is during the students making their decision phase in April or late March. Sure. Well, and that brings me to my next question, which is, are colleges still offering these? I I remember when I was applying to college, and as has been established in previous shows, that was eons ago, um, I didn't actually drive to a post office uh, looking for one that was open at midnight, but I did have to mail my (laughs) applications in, so that's how long ago it was. Um, But uh, back in the day, that was a pretty common thing. It wasn't hard to, you just called up and said, I want to spend the night, and they hooked you up with someone, and you could go and, like, spend a weekend at the college. And I'm curious about, you know, is that, I'm not sure that's the case at most colleges these days. No, not quite. It's it's definitely much more um, structured now, and I think it's going to be very, very rare to find a a campus that's going to allow a prospective student to overnight on a weekend. Um, Most campuses that, if a campus is going to offer overnight visits, most Mm -hmm. of them are going to say you can visit from Monday night through Thursday night, not the Friday, Saturday night visit for um, both safety and, you know, reasons of not wanting students to be in a situation where, Socially, they might put their own application to that college or they're standing at their high school in jeopardy. Um, One of the big components that we should probably address today is that it is always important to be on your best behavior during college visits, but it's particularly important when you're on an overnight. Um, You need to understand that your attitude reflects um, your attitude and your uh, your actions during the visit can reflect in your application and you Mm -hmm. you don't want to have, you know, anything negative be said about you in committee or in the decision-making process. And you certainly don't want your application to be rescinded for doing something like drinking alcohol on an overnight visit with your host. Um, But it is, it is, it is a bit more structured for a variety of reasons. Um, I think we also, as somebody who used to work in an overnight visit program, where we'd have hundreds of visits, hundreds of students overnighting in a single night as a revisit program. Um, we just live in a more litigious society, I think, than we did 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago. And um, we have more parents who have concerns about their students visiting, and we have more college boards who have concerns about students who aren't enrolled at the school visiting. And where I worked, everybody had to sign a waiver and a disciplinary um, code before they were allowed to spend the night. So it's it's definitely a much more structured experience, but it does still happen on some campuses. Got it. Yeah, and I I think... When I was working at Penn, it had, they had changed drastically their policies, and I know that because there were a lot of problems on weekend visits, and not just with kids getting themselves into trouble, but also maybe being matched with students who were really excited to go out to parties, and the, and the student visiting, the high school student, was sort of really uncomfortable with that idea, and was there more to get a sense for the academic side of the school, and the other challenge with weekend visits is, you can't visit a class. There aren't classes on weekends. So if that's something you're trying to get a clo- closer look at, it didn't make sense to do the visits uh, on over the weekend. So 
what what are some other things that um, you would want people to be aware of, or you know, whether that's positive pitfalls or just things they need to think about as they plan for overnight visits? I think one of the major things with overnight visits is we're seeing more and more schools kind of move away from the typical weeknight overnight visit that could happen any time during the school year to kind of isolating these big overnight events where it's not just you spending the night in on campus as a visitor. There might be hundreds of admitted students or prospective students at one time. I think it's really important to remember that that day that you visit might not be exactly representative of typical mm-hmm. life on that college campus. Um, that probably goes for any visit, whether it's an overnight or uh, an overnight or a revisit day or an open house. But I think particularly when we're talking about these big revisit overnights that, you know, are just massive in scale, students should be particularly thoughtful about how that day is just fundamentally different from what would be their own day-to-day life as a student. Um, to take it with a grain of salt, um, what you're seeing. I, when, when I worked at Reed and ran our big overnight revisit program, we would have fire dancing and free ice cream and all the clubs would have meetings that night so that students could go visit them. That was not a typical Sunday night at Reed College. A typical Sunday <laughs> night at Reed College was 90% of the students being in the library. Um, right. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> right, absolutely. I, I do think it's a very important point that these special programs are organized to give you as much of a taste of the school as they can cram into two days and overnight. And it's not like they're trying to present the school as something that it isn't. They're just trying to give you a taste of some of the fun things that you could take advantage of over time versus on one Sunday night, right? So that's, um, right. that's going to make it a little bit different than, than any normal Sunday night on a college campus. Right. Um, and the other so, thing that I think is really great about overnighting is you're probably going to have some free time to wander on your own. Your host generally isn't expected to spend all 24 hours with you. Um, they'll have homework to do or a meeting that they need to attend. And so I think overnights are a really great time to spend some time on campus just imagining, okay, if I were actually here for freshman year, what would this feel like? What, you know, where would I be spending my time? And I would go spend some time in that area. So if you're a student who loves to work out, go get a workout in, in the fitness facility. Um, if you're a student who loves quiet, cozy spots for reading and getting your work done, go try to find that place on campus. If you're hell-bent on majoring in chemistry, go to the chemistry building and see what it's like and what students are talking about and what posters are on the walls. I think you just have a more extended opportunity to really put yourself in the position of being an actual, real, live, current student at that school. So that's really what I would be taking advantage of if I were overnighting. Got it. And I think that's great advice. And then just in terms of of finding out about overnight visits, like anything with visiting, just stop by the website first. 
uh, and look for that information. Okay. Yep. And typically, if you don't see it listed, it's not offered. It doesn't hurt to ask. If your parents really want to ask, let them ask. Um, But, yeah, typically, if it's not on the website, it's not offered. (laughs) That's what I would say. Got it. All right. One last very quick thing is where we come to the end of our time. Uh, What do you think about just doing sort of that unofficial visit where, oh, well, my friend's daughter goes to that school and my son is interested in it or... You know, I know someone from my high school who went there, and I was just going to go and spend the night with that person. What do you think about that? I think if your student or you as a student are comfortable with it, it's a fine way to visit. You should just keep in mind that if something goes wrong, the admissions office is not going to be there to help you. Um, right. So you should have a good plan in place with your parents. Exactly. They don't even know you're there, so they can't help you. They don't but, know you're uh, there. Right. <laughs> exactly. But well, and if and if it's the only visit you are going to do, I would find a way to stop by the admissions office and maybe do a tour yeah. and do an an information session so that if the school is tracking, you're going to get credit by for checking in in the official visit, but you don't have to tell admissions that you're there if you're staying with a friend. Um so long as you're following school rules about guests in the dorm and things like that you should be fine. Abigail, thank you so much for joining me today. It was really helpful. No, thanks for having me, Beth. All right, great. Well, when we get back, we're going to be talking about the benefits of urban campuses, rural campuses, suburban campuses, how to think through each of those options. So don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, 
please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to welcome my colleague, who also happens to be a former admissions officer at Babson College and a scholarship reviewer and interviewer at UNC Chapel Hill and Duke. So she has a perspective of a few different campuses, including Boston College, where she was also um, a student volunteer. Christine Kenyon. Hi, Christine. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And thanks for joining today. I really appreciate it. Sure. All right. So today, our topic... I w- as I was thinking about the different places you have worked, I was thinking that, you know, you might have a variety of locations, but really, I, I guess I personally would think about all of the campuses where you worked as being pretty suburban, although maybe there's an argument to be made that Boston College is sort of urban, but not really. Um, so you definitely have the suburban thing down. Absolutely, yes. A lot of experience there. (laughs) All right, cool. Well, but let's talk a little bit about what are, you know, one of the things that we, when we talk to students about putting together a list, one of the things we ask about is, do you want an urban campus, a suburban campus, a more rural campus, or a small town campus? And I often get, not always, but I will get from time to time sort of a blank look from kids about, I, how would I know that? I don't know. Or they haven't done much thinking about that. So what, in your opinion, are the main differences between those three types of campus, urban, suburban, and rural? Yeah, great question. So I think that um, a lot of it has to do with access to opportunities outside of the college itself. So urban campuses, they can come in all different sizes, but generally speaking, they're in the heart of a city center. So for students who are looking for an urban campus, they not only want to have their college experience where they take their courses with their, their peers and their professors and have some opportunities for clubs and athletics, but they really want to be in a city so that if they wanted to roll out of bed and go do some work from a coffee shop and then, you know, go to a museum and round out the day by having, uh, you know, dinner at a restaurant, they could do that without running into any of their peers from their college if they so chose to do so. Cho- right. So chose to do so. Um, with a suburban campus, uh, typically students here are looking for some sort of a, a central campus that keeps students together, um, where the majority of students are living on campus and studying at the library on campus, going to the dining hall on campus. But they still want access to some of those amenities that are close to campus, movie theaters and restaurants and um, access to, to arts and, and, and whatnot. Um, and then there are rural, rural campuses, and these are campuses that are surrounded typically by beautiful countryside. And the really nice thing about a rural campus is that you have a really great opportunity to connect with your peers and your professors. Professors who teach at rural campuses do so because they are invested in that, that student experience. Um, they are going to be really available to the students who attend there. Um, this is going to be the social center for how you spend your time at night and on weekends if you're student at on a rural campus. Um, and so there may not be a ton going on outside of campus, but you have this really centralized and personalized experience uh, on your college's campus. So they are kind of three distinctly different campus experiences. Um, and 
I do think students need to spend some time thinking about where they've grown up and lived um, and, and how they live their life, how they enjoy having access to different amenities as they start thinking about which campus type might be right for them. Right, absolutely. So let's go through each one of these in terms of, I think you hit on a lot of the pros of those, but um, any additional pros you would add to being on an urban campus? We'll start with that one. Um, yeah, I think urban campuses can be really great for internship opportunities. So for students who are looking for hands-on work experience, um, they might be seeking out a co-op opportunity uh, that coincides with their uh, academic semester. Or maybe they want to juggle a part-time job or do some job shadowing every Friday. That is going to be infinitely easier to do in an urban setting. They're going to have so many more opportunities to go and connect with um, real professionals and have access to those opportunities because they're right in the heart of a city. Got it. All right. So then in, what about suburban campuses? What are some other positives and some pros that you see with that suburban style? I think suburban campuses have um, a little bit of everything. So suburban campuses are good for students who um, are kind of looking for a well-rounded college experience. Uh, you know, I think of this kind of like I think about students who apply to college undecided. So they're excited about the experience. They want a little bit of everything, but they don't quite know exactly what their focus is. They're not being driven by saying, I must have a co-op experience or I must have um, the opportunity to connect with my professors even on weekends. So suburban campuses kind of give students the best of both worlds in that they have a set campus that um, many students might live on and, and that offers opportunities um, for bringing the community together through athletics or, or the arts, um, but they can access the city for things like internships and access to, um, you know, more of that arts and, and, and fun stuff that's, that's in a city. It takes a little right. bit more time and energy and effort to get there, um, but they still have access to it. Right, exactly. And then what about rural? And I would say of these three, in the, more of the students that I speak with, and it could be my location on the East Coast, although I do talk to students from all over the world and the United States, uh, more of them seem to be focused on urban and suburban than rural. But mm -hmm. I see a lot of pros with rural, and I'm curious what you might add to the, the one that you already mentioned about how everything sort of revolves around the life at that school, which is, I, in my mind is a pretty significant plus. I so agree. I think that rural campuses are really great for students who want to be all in to their college experience. So they want to take advantage of every piece of their college experience. And a lot of the times rural campuses are small, so um, they're looking for a more personalized college experience. So I think about colleges like Kenyon College or Grinnell, um, where the student population is really smart and motivated and outgoing and hardworking and that that happens because all of the students are there together and, and they are, they've found each other by finding this institution that um, hits a lot of their goals and, and interests and brings them together. So you're surrounded by like-minded peers who um, are motivating you to, to be your best self. And so I agree. I think that urban and suburban campuses are, uh, you know, the ones that maybe get more more play on the airwaves and uh, are a little bit more comfortable for many students. But I do think rural campuses can provide a really amazing educational opportunity for, some, for the right student. 
I would add also, um, not that I would consider so, I went to Cornell, which I wouldn't say is rural per se, but I would call it more small town. Um, certainly mm-hmm. you would have to, there is no major city. So I guess, you know, if you're from New York City, you'd consider it fairly rural. One of the things that I was drawn to when I was looking at schools was when I went to BU to visit, um, I grew up in Massachusetts, the very, the first floor of the bookstore was a clothing store. And I don't mean BU clothes, I mean clothes, like I would want to go and shop there. And I walked in and I thought, I'm not going to have any money. I, I won't have any money. I'm barely <laughs> going to be, I'm going to be scraping my pennies to get through my daily life at school. And the, the more rural location felt like, well, all we had in the bookstore were college clothes and my parents bought me a sweatshirt. I was all set. It just felt Mm -hmm. like I would need less money to Mm -hmm. enjoy the experience than maybe I would need at a more urban setting, which maybe is a nice segue into the cons of an urban campus. And I would start with one of them for me is that you do need, you know, when I lived in New York City, I couldn't leave my apartment and spend less than $20. I don't know what I would have done as a college student there. And I do think it can be way pricier everything, right? Where you're living, um, that coffee at the coffee shop, uh, dinner out with friends, all of those things can be much more expensive in, a, in an urban setting. Um, but what other, any other cons that you would add to, to any of those? I think urban campuses just really require students who are comfortable being uncomfortable. They're comfortable being really independent and seeking out what they need on their own terms. Um, you know, a lot of urban campuses just don't have housing. So they may have it for the first year, but after that, it's up to the students to figure out where to live. And the shift from being in a residential dorm surrounded by peers who are your same age and in, in adjusting to college in the same way that you are, that that disappears if you're in a, an urban campus and you're looking for, uh, you have to look for an apartment and deal with a landlord and be cooking um, on your own, which you'll have to do because in an urban campus, eating out is very expensive. And so you're going to have to have some of those ramen noodle nights at home um, where you're cooking. And, and for a lot of students, that's, that's a turnoff. You know, they want to go to a dining mm-hmm. hall. They want to be surrounded by, by students who are, you know, just kind of stopping by and chit-chatting and don't have to worry about making thing, making any food and then continue on their way. So I think urban campuses really require independent students. Um, also because if you oversleep through your alarm and you don't make it to class, or you oversleep and you have to take the subway and the subway crashes or whatever the case may be, um, your professor is likely not going to reach out and say, hey, where are you? What's happening? Um, You know, it's expected that you're going to make it to class. And if you don't, it's up to you to then seek out the professor and say, hey, this is what happened. I'm really sorry. I missed this class. How can I I move forward Um, and, and continue to meet the goals and assessments of this course? But and that's a, but it, you do raise a very good point about the idea that you might have to get on a subway because maybe you are living outside of the city or in a different neighborhood of the city because you couldn't afford to live uh, close to campus. You'd been priced mm-hmm. out of that, which which I think can happen. Uh, all right. Well, what about some of the negatives when you think about a suburban setting? Hmm, good question. I So I went to a suburban college. I went to Boston College myself. Um, and I think that some of the negatives were the fact that um, 
while we had the city nearby, we still tended to stick a little bit close to campus. So we didn't have quite as much exposure to diversity and the arts and, and, you know, all of these different things I imagined myself taking advantage of as a college Mm -hmm. student um, because I was tired. And I, you know, I I was studying and I had my activities Mm -hmm. and my involvement. And, um, you know, I I look back on my college experience and I wish that I had had taken advantage of that. So it was more like a level of, of comfort. I knew that it was there if I wanted to take advantage of it, but I really wish that I had done so more as a college student. Right, and maybe if you're going to a suburban campus with the idea that you will have the best of both worlds, but none of your co- you know, your friends want to go into mm-hmm. the city or you find that it's much more difficult and much more expensive, then you might actually not be getting what you thought you were going to be getting. So I do think that's a potential downside, mm-hmm. right? You thought you were going to do those things and you wished that you had, but other students might find that they're ready to do it, but they don't. Mm-hmm. there isn't as much of that happening. Uh, as they maybe hoped. What about a rural setting? What do you see as some of the negatives for that rural slash small town? Rural settings, I think it's just the logistics. So uh, you made a really good point in bringing up Cornell as being kind of a small town but feeling more rural than uh, certainly New York City. Um, And I think about UConn in the same way, where this Mm -hmm. is a big campus with a lot of students, but there's not much going on um, around campus. So I think that depending on where you are in the country, rural campuses, you need to keep in mind how far away from an airport am I? You know, if you're coming from across the country um, and you want to make sure that you can get home in case there's an emergency or, um, you know, be able to fly home for Thanksgiving or President's Day or whatever the holiday is, you need to factor in the additional two hours or three hours it may take for you to drive to get to a city center that has access to an airport or a hospital or something to that effect. Um, so those are, you know, kind of extreme cases, but I do think that it's something students need to take into account is thinking about what their needs are in terms of access to healthcare and airports and, and, and whatnot um, and how realistic it is for them to be a little bit further away from some of these areas. Right, right. And I do think, valid point, it took me, it used to take me six hours to get to and from Cornell, and there really was no easy way. We always drove. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was fine. It became part of my experience because I would hitch a ride home with a friend who had uh, a car or maybe even find a ride on a job uh, board or on a board on campus. But it wasn't as simple as buying a train ticket or buying a plane mm-hmm. ticket, which would have been, I could have done, but which would have been incredibly expensive. And as mentioned previously, I would not have had the money for that. So um, mm-hmm. I think good point. Very quickly, um, as we get to the end of our time. So we, we've been talking about urban campuses as if they're all sort of urban campuses, and they're not all the same. And so what are some examples in your mind that might feel different from one another? Yeah. So I think NYU is a great example of probably the most urban campus I can think of. Um, you know, mm-hmm. this is smack dab in the heart of New York City, and, and it's kind of in a world of its own. NYU feels really different from another urban campus, the College of Charleston, which is in South Carolina. Still an urban Mm -hmm. campus, right in the center of downtown Charleston, but it feels night and day in terms of how urban it is in comparison to a school like NYU. Um, Right. 
So, you know, schools like the University of Pittsburgh, that's another urban campus, but um, it's close to other universities and has access to, um, you know, a lot of the different facilities that are nearby and some of their partner institutions. That's also an urban campus that feels different. So, you know, urban campuses are really connected to the city that they're located in, and every city feels different. So I think students really have to do some soul-searching to understand um, just how urban do they mean when they think about going to an urban college for those four years. Right, right, exactly. And not to harp on but NYU, I always felt when, when I visited and when, I have, when I'm in New York, it's sort of like, oh, look, there's a purple flag. That's NYU. That's a building mm-hmm. for the college. That's not a negative, but it isn't a positive for everyone. So it, it is so integrated into the city versus, say, Penn, where I worked for a number of years, you know when you're on the Penn campus. And it's not a closed campus, but it is definitely a real campus with a quad. And you aren't necessarily going to find that as much in some urban centers, but in other urban centers, it it is. It's going to be just, it'll be part of the city, but it will be a very distinct part of the city. Very quickly, um, I think we've pretty much uh, helped people understand that we can't say one campus is better than another. They all have their pros. They all have their cons. Any more advice around how students can be more thoughtful around, do I really need urban? Do I really need suburban? Do I really need rural? You know, I honestly think that this is where campus visits are so critically important in the college search process because as we've been talking about, different suburban campuses, different urban campuses and rural campuses, they all feel distinct um, from one another. They're all going to feel a little bit different, you know, and, you know, you're looking at a suburban campus like Pepperdine versus a suburban campus like Northwestern. Um, Both are beautiful and and, uh, rich collegiate experiences, but they feel and look very different. So I think that taking the time before you apply to college to visit campuses to try and, and, and wrap your head around what these different campuses feel like is really, really important and only the, and, and really the, the true way to figure out which campus might be right for you. Got it. I think that's great advice. Christine, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Don't go away. We are busting college finance myths in part one of a two-part series when we return. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you become a member yet? 
Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Every so often, we get together as a group and think about the fact that there are these myths in both the finance side of college uh, and in the admission side of college that seem to just perpetuate themselves, and uh, we've probably talked about some of these before, but they're so evergreen that it's always good to return to them, and so we've scheduled a two-part series on busting those college finance myths, and today is part one, and joining me is my current colleague and former financial aid officer at Emerson College and Elms College, and also former VP of Education Finance and student loans at J.P. Morgan Chase, so she knows a lot about college finance, um, Stacy McFeeters. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thrilled to have you here. I want to get right into it because, as we note, these are questions that we get over and over again, and my guess is that our listeners will be very interested in learning more about this. So I'm going to jump right in with the first myth that we hear a lot, and this is that public colleges and universities always... Uh, key being always, I would underline and bold it if I was writing that, cost less than private colleges and universities, and that basically students who are worried about how they're going to pay should really just skip private schools when they're applying and don't even bother. What are your thoughts about that? So that's probably the myth we hear the most. You know, everybody's neighbor's sister's cousin has something to say. Um, and the yep. reality is not always right, and I think that we hear the whole notion of we're only applying to public colleges because they're cheaper is probably the one we hear the most. And the reality is that is absolutely not necessarily true. You know, when you look at the sticker price of a college, yep, your public schools are less expensive than your private schools. I I can't even think of a single exception where that's not true. However, Mm -hmm. when you get involved in the college finance process between merit scholarships and need-based financial aid, private schools have a much greater ability to discount their costs. And when you think about what those financial aid dollars and what those merit scholarship dollars are, they really are simply a discount to the original sticker price. So realistically, those schools are almost automatically hatching a little bit off the top to bring their prices more in line with um, some of their public counterparts. So really encourage families to not make those sort of global decisions before they start the process. What I would rather have families do is, you know, take some time and look at what that that sort of full equation might look like. And that might involve, 
you know, taking a look at what the financial aid eligibility for a particular family might be. If you're yeah. a family of, you know, moderate income and a school is, is a very high-cost private, their offering might bring you right in line with, uh, with, your, with your public counterpart. Right, and I, that's a key consideration, right? Whether I know that a lot of times uh, families, are who, especially those who aren't going to qualify for financial aid, then leap to the automatic conclusion that, well, because we're not going to qualify for financial aid, we're automatically, uh, we're, we're just going to apply to the publics because those privates are way too expensive and I can't write a check for $70,000, which, by the way, the majority of people in this country can't write a check for $70,000. There's some way in which these schools are staying afloat and that's the whole discounting piece. Other, um, other thoughts are around that idea of um, families who don't qualify for financial yep. aid but still finding privates cheaper? Absolutely. So this is where your school selection strategy becomes most critical, is when your family has no need-based or limited need-based financial aid eligibility. And it's actually interesting because this is where your private schools become an even greater player in your process than your public schools. And so what I mean by that is when you're thinking about your school selection process, you know, most of us think about applying to those REACH schools, you know, it's just, you know, God, wouldn't it be great if? But you really need to think about yes. when schools are using their own money to give merit scholarships, who are they going to give that money to? Well, they're going to give it to the students that they want to recruit the most. So that's where you have to become really strategic when looking at private schools and consider those sort of schools that fit in the middle, maybe those, those just right schools or even some of those no problem or safety schools. Those safety schools might look at a student who might otherwise have applied to and gotten into those reach schools and say, wow, this student could change our profile. We really want to give them some money to get them to come here instead of going there. And private schools have a much greater opportunity to do that than any public school. That, that's part of what they do. Um, if you don't mind, Beth, I'll share a personal anecdote from my own experience. Please. When I was the director of financial aid at Elms College, our greatest competitor was two of our local public schools. So a part of my job with the enrollment team was to really attract those students that were probably going to go to the public school, but with, with, you know, by virtue of our merit dollars, we wanted those students the most. They were the most attractive at our applicant pool. We didn't want to lose them to our, our state counterpart. So very often our offers to them were you know, significant um, on the merit side. So I think that's one of those things that families sort of discount is really being deliberate in your school selection process. If you have a student who could qualify for, you know, a higher tier school but are willing to look at the lower tiers, those schools are going to want them and are going to give you some money for them to come. Right, right, exactly. So you definitely want to be thinking about that and you want to fall in love with your safeties. Uh, if I could impart one piece of advice here today, and this is not really finance-related, although it clearly is, is that just because the school wants you is not a reason to not like that school, and especially if they want you to the tune of giving you tens of thousands of dollars and making it even cheaper for you to go to that school versus going to your public school, and you like the school, which it shouldn't be on your list if you don't like it, then why would you not strongly consider it? And I know it's human nature to somehow discount the place that really most wants you, but um, with the finance side in mind, uh, I, I would strongly encourage people to, to look at this differently. Don't just look at it as, oh, it's my safety, therefore it's less than. Look at it as the, wow, this school will really want me and that's exciting to me. Um, anything you would add on that front before we go to the next myth? Uh, no, I think, I think we, you know, really covered it. I think it's just a matter of, you know, don't make assumptions. 
really understand, you know, both the need-based and the merit-based process in school selection, and I think you're going to have a much, a much richer experience. All right, great. So let's move on to the next one, which is the idea that, you know, apply out of, to an out-of-state public, um, but don't worry about it. Yeah, you're going to pay way more than an in-state student would in that first year, but you're going to get out-of-state tuition, I'm sorry, in-state tuition in future years. So you'll get there, you'll live there for a year, now you'll be an in-state student, and now you'll pay significantly less than you did that first year. Uh, I'm actually kind of shocked this is a myth, but <laughs> what? what what is the, uh, I mean, let's be real, people. If you could do this, then why wouldn't everyone do this? But what's the reality yeah. of this? So that's the, the reality is no, um, you know, because exactly what you <laughs> right. just said is true. If that were true, we wouldn't have a differentiator between in-state and out-of-state tuition because everybody would be doing it. Um, and so the, the, the reality is if you are looking at, at an out-of-state school, you're going to be looking at a cost probably somewhere between your high-cost private and your in-state public. And what is sort of a double whammy with those out-of-state private school, uh, public schools is you probably are very unlikely to be looking at any merit scholarships. By and large, public schools tend not to offer much by way of merit. So you're kind of already putting yourself behind the eight ball. And then to make the assumption that once you've been there for whatever period of time it might be, you're going to establish in-state residency, very, very, very unlikely. Schools are wise to this. Um, they're, they're very clear on what their in-state residency requirements are. Most of the time, every state is different, but most of the time schools require that um, residency is established before a student enrolls. Um, it cannot be for, you know, election of domicile cannot be for education purposes, which basically means if the only reason you're there is to go to school, you can establish residency. Mm-hmm. So really don't make that assumption. First and foremost, check your um, potential school uh, registrar offices or registrar websites to see what their rules are. Don't make any assumptions. Um, there are some other possibilities that, that you could take into consideration, but I just, you know, first and foremost, don't make the assumption um, that, it, that it's an automatic thing. If you go to the out-of-state school, live there for a couple months, you know, <laughs> before that in future years you'll become a resident because you probably won't. Right. And, and actually, for listeners who are curious about, you know, maybe there are schools with different, um, uh, where they will grant in-state tuition to someone who's out of state. We actually did a whole series on the different options that are out there on that. There are a lot of restrictions on those, but they are a possibility. Uh, but I would go into our archives and, and look at those. Um, you know, Wooey comes to mind, but there are a number of others, um, and yep, check exactly. those out if you're interested. Okay. Yeah, when, when basically quickly. what you want to think about is whether or not the, you, your state and the state at, you know, to which you're looking has a tuition reciprocity agreement, and absolutely they exist. There are, um, there's associations in the South. Um, the state of Maine is offering reciprocity. Um, you mentioned Wooey, absolutely, but those are the avenues that I'd be looking into before even considering any of those uh, out-of-state opportunities. Right. Unless, of course, Absolutely. you're willing to pay the out-of-state cost. <laughs> yes. Right. Well, and that's a whole different question. But the fact is, if you're doing it with the idea that you'll only pay out-of-state for one year, stop what you're doing because that's not the case. Okay. Yep. We have a couple more minutes. So I want to tackle this last myth. Um, and this is the idea that you should be out there applying for every single private scholarship you can. And perhaps more importantly, and I think this is probably the bigger half of the myth, this idea that millions of dollars go unclaimed every year, which is spread far and wide, I think by 
companies who want you to use their services to find these supposed unclaimed millions of dollars that don't think that's true, but you are the expert, so tell me. I would agree that this is another myth that you should spend every moment of free time between junior and senior year and going into college applying for private scholarships. It is no longer true that millions of dollars are left unclaimed. I've been in in this industry for a very long time. I hate to tell you how long. And in the beginning, I will tell you that, yes, scholarships were being left on the table all over the place because there was really no way to find them. So what I'm telling you is I predate the Internet. Um, (laughs) Me too. With the... the, the you know, evolution of the Internet, you can find a scholarship for just about anything in the click of a, few, of a few buttons. So the reality is the amount of time that you're going to spend applying for what are a very small portion of scholarships is not probably worth your time. Let me just give you a little perspective. Private scholarships make up only 6% of the total undergraduate aid that's awarded on an annual basis. So when you're thinking about, you know, how much time you want to spend applying for scholarships, just realize that there's 94% of the dollars are coming from somewhere else, whether it's federal aid, whether it's institutional scholarships, as we just spoke about, institutional grants. Um, so it, it, really highly unlikely. And then the other piece of it is when you are applying for those scholarships, and I'm not saying you shouldn't apply for some, but look for those that are most appropriate, that most fit you know, your qualifications. And if, you're, if you don't meet all of their requirements, somebody out there is going to. So right. I always say when you're looking at private scholarships, do what, what I consider a time-benefit analysis. If it's going to spend, you're going to take 10 hours to do a $100 scholarship, you could probably find a better way to use your time. Right, like maybe go get a job and exactly. you could probably yep. work and, and earn, well, I don't know, with, with, uh, with minimum wage being what it is and teenage jobs being what they are, you can't, but it is a cost-benefit analysis. And the other important cost that, you know, you sort of alluded to is the idea that you are taking time away from, or potentially taking time away from studies and important things that you could be doing that might get you better grades or more interesting activities, which might qualify you for more institutional merit aid versus writing a whole bunch of essays for a whole bunch of scholarships that you have a very small chance of, of getting. Um, right. And I do think sometimes people can waste their time a little bit from that perspective. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you would add um, about any of this and, and with, a, with the idea in mind that we do have two parts, so we're going to be tackling some more myths in the, in the second part, but I didn't know if there's anything else you wanted to add about all these things that we've talked about so far. No, and, and like you said, there's a whole lot of other myths that you'll you'll cover um, in the next in the in the next um, event. But really, when you hear something that you're not sure about, if it doesn't feel like it should be true, or you know you you, you question it, find the answer because there are so many myths out there. So thanks for thanks right. for putting these one out there and putting putting them to rest. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I thought of one quick thing. In terms of the best website for Clearinghouse to find those outside scholarships, understanding that we are not discouraging students from applying for those, just wanting people to be realistic and be thoughtful about where they apply, would you say scholarships.com is the, the first place that you suggest people go? That's where I start, yeah. I absolutely. So when you're looking for sort of those bigger picture national programs, I would use a site like a scholarships.com. But I would also tell people if you really are going to spend time, Start locally first. You know, you're going to have a greater chance when you're a known commodity or you're part of a much smaller group. So look in your own neighborhood. Check with your own high school guidance office. 
um, work with associations that you're already affiliated with because I think your chances are going to be much better. But when you do want to throw the net wider, I do think scholarships.com tends to be very um, accurate, thorough, and, and not a lot of um, you know not information out there. Got it. Yes. Thank you so much, Stacy, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Great. Well, thanks to, as I just said, Stacy, and all of my guests. Next week, Ian is hosting. Um, we're going to be continuing the thread on the college visits and talking more about common college visit pitfalls and how to avoid them. We're also going to be doing an office hours for those students who are seniors and are waiting for their regular decision results. We're going to be talking about preparing for those, how to, how to prepare to get them and how to react uh, and, and what to be uh, ready to plan to do when you get those results or as they start to come in. We're going to be doing that part two in the college finance myth busting uh, that we've already talked about. Uh, if you are interested in more information, our archives, they're free. You can download us on iTunes. You can access them all here at Voice America. Uh, we also have this great blog, blog.getintocollege.com. Uh, we also do, about at least once a month, a show where we answer your questions. So send us those questions. Gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com is our email address. Uh, again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. For anyone who is interested in what those highly, highly selectives are interested in or wondering if you're competitive, that is a big big question that I see on a lot of forums. I wrote a blog series for the Huffington Post called Who Gets Into Harvard? So if you Google that along with my name, Elizabeth Heaton, you will come up with those uh, articles and you can check that out. I think it's about a nine-part series, so check it out. Uh, And then don't forget, we're here every week at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.